welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us we have John Aitchison. John's been a fireman since 2003. He's now a watch commander up at the retain station up in Inverbervie. The last 10 years, he's been an instructor in Aberdeen on all sorts of areas within the fire service. Outside of that, he's a member of International Rescue for 11 years. Now, I'm reliably informed that's the UK's International Search and Rescue team rather than the Thunderbirds, although wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> and he went up to Nepal after the earthquake in 2015. He's also been involved with a humanitarian aid charity, Operation Florian, since 2007, which does all sorts of search and rescue training across the globe, really. He's here to talk to us about the roles and responsibilities of the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service. John, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much, Steve. Thanks for asking me. Obviously, from days when you know I was sat around on a play rug with a, a fire engine, I always assumed that firefighters did fires, and that was pretty much it. I'm coming to realise that you guys do quite a chunk more than that. Yeah, we've kind of always done a bit more than people realise, you know, from RTCs, road traffic collisions to water rescues. But since 2005, the Scottish Fire and Rescue Act came into play and it actually set down in law what we're actually detailed to do. And it's vast. And because the Act's an enabling act, quite often other things get added to it fairly rapidly. Um, for example, after 9-11, I think new dimensions came in and were tasked to provide urban search and rescue, mass decontamination, along with the, the day-to-day tasks of road traffic collisions, fires, rescuing cats from trees, etc. So it's very, very varied, like I say. And I'm guessing the cats from trees things is coming a dying art, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always say I've never seen any cat skeletons up on a tree. That's quite a common one for firefighters to say. <laughs> <laughs> I guess from a, a basics responder's point of view, the times that we tend to come across you guys is either as part of a multi-agency response yep. or as a, at an RTC when, whether it's you guys on scene first or us, there's somebody sort of trapped in an ex-car. Yes, maybe in the last couple of years, I've been aware of the basics first responders. And as I I teach trauma care as an instructor in the fire service, I'm now putting a cross for crews to actually ask for the basics first responders, doctors, nurses, paramedics as an asset. A lot of people aren't actually aware of basics out in the field. But yeah, it can be anything from fires where we might actually need the basics doctor's help for ourselves to pulling somebody out and the ambulance as it is they can't help it but sometimes they are late because there are other calls and if we can get somebody within the first five ten minutes that lives nearby that's got the skills and it's absolutely phenomenal let's say it can be lots of different varied incidents that they get called out to absolutely we know that that early intervention whether it's from you guys or from us actually that's the stuff that makes a difference rather than all the fancy medicine that happens down the line oh yeah yeah i mean as you know you know the, the things that are done in the first five minutes will dictate the casualties long-term outcome you know in the, in the trauma scenario we like said before that if you started maybe people aren't aware of the trauma care education that the firefighters receive nowadays it's quite intense the skills are practiced on a regular basis um, basic life support, hemorrhage control, even now we've gone into environmentals, which is a fairly new thing for the fire service. The, the skills are up there, and 
I think the more interaction we get with the basics, the better for maybe the doctors and paramedics to turn up that they can sort of rely on firefighters to assist. Absolutely. It's more skilled, knowledgeable hands that you can bring to the patient. I just want to backtrack a wee bit and just look at the responsibilities of these multi-agency mm. things, because for me, it's pretty straightforward. I rock up as a doctor and I'm there to look after the patients. Yeah. And I'm very aware that there is an entire structure around me that's there to facilitate and to try and extract those patients from that situation. Yeah. But how does the fire service fit into that? So it depends who's called out first. Sometimes, quite a lot of time, let's use road traffic collisions, for example. The police would generally turn up first. Then hopefully, we always hope the ambulance turns up before us. Then it's the fire service. But quite often, it can be the fire service that turns up at the same time as the police or, or before the paramedics. So if you're called to, let's say, a, a road traffic collision, for example, it's important to make contact with the, the relevant people as soon as you come onto the scene. A few reasons for that is getting a, a rundown or a handover of what exactly has happened, how the casualties are getting on and, and whereabouts the casualties are. Sometimes middle of the night can be very complicated depending on the number of vehicles that are involved and the hazards that are involved. And that's really why we encourage the oncoming basics, doctors to paramedics to come in and actually have a word with us first. You'll see that there'll be a sigh of relief when the incident commander sees you because they know there's a, a medical professional on scene that can take a lot of the pressure off of us. Um, and generally, we will look to you guys for a lead. Legally, we'll be in charge of your health and safety and running the incident, but we would really come to you and as an OIC myself, I'm a watch commander, I'd be asking what you need of us. If it was an RTC, I would say, this is what we can do. We can take the roof off, we can take the side of the car off, whatever you need, and then would really take the lead then from yourself. And it's always casualty centred. And as the patient would then be yours, you would be the centre of attention on that one and would take your lead. But it is important, obviously, when you turn up, you make contact with the officer in charge who will have a, a fluorescent tabard on with incident commander on that and you make contact with him or her and they will give you the, the appropriate handover and safety brief and make sure that you have on the correct personal protective equipment as well so that you're safe then to go into the incident once you know about the, the hazards and the risk level. It's fantastic knowing that there is a, a set of eyes that are not focused on the casualty but are actually having that overwatch and, and looking at that scene safety. It's certainly something that I can kind of put further back in my mind and not have to worry yeah, about Yeah, fire service has always, always been big. I've been in 18 years now and, you know, one of the first things you get is about looking after your own safety first and the colleagues around you, the other services. And when we're at a larger incident, we always put in place a standalone safety officer. So we're aware of our own safety, the safety around us, the safety of the casualties. But in the background, we've also got a safety officer in place who's looking after everybody's safety now. I've got to send back every 30 minutes uh, an analytical risk assessment form, which is a written down risk assessment form. I've got to put the control measures in there um, to try and minimise risks or take away the, the risks. That is written down. It's signed by myself and it goes back in a radio message. Try to put it back every 20 to 30 minutes to our control and it all gets recorded down. So safety is the top of my hierarchy when it comes to any incident. And let's say we're looking after you guys as well in that incident. And certainly from past experience around here, the officer in charge of the scene is a wealth of knowledge, 
both about the scene, but also you know, because you guys have been in amongst the patients often before mm-hmm. we get there, there'll be that initial handover of patient care. Yeah. And again, that's something that we're trying to reinforce, especially like myself and the PHTLS sort of team within the training department when we're teaching is that missed handover to you guys, giving a, an accurate kind of description of what we've found the casualties, sort of signs and symptoms, and you know the sort of trends that they've had since we've come on attendance until we've passed the casualty over to yourself. So that just gets reiterated to the firefighters the importance of the history up until the point that you turn up for that handover. And it all builds, in my mind, into that kind of overall question about, you know, is this a big sick patient that yeah. we need to just rip them out or is this somebody that we can do a nice controlled get you guys to get the can open around yeah and take the car yeah so we can do an immediate rescue we've always got these plans in our head you used to call them plan a plan b you know we always think outside the box there's plan c plan d quite a lot of the time if a patient does get big sick we always have the immediate plan in place where we can hopefully just tweak them out if you like or it may be a case of they're okay for the time being. We'll make a massive space round about them and maybe remove the roof and the, the sides of the car for you guys. We've always got that plan A, if you like, the immediate plan in, in place before we go for the, what we call the full plan, which could be dismantling the car round about them. So and we've always got a, a plan C and a plan D as well, because sometimes the plan A and B don't really go to plan. <laughs> so there's always always things going on in the background, depending on the casualties condition. I've certainly uh, had to make a, a pretty brisk move from a nice controlled plan A to a slightly less controlled plan C or D. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's where the incident commander will ask you, you know, what do you need of us? This is what we can do. We can take time. We can do X, Y and Z. Or do you need them out now? And we can just get them out now. I guess other things that we need to look at in terms of the fire rescue service capabilities, what kind of kits do you guys carry on your standard fire truck? We've got two sides to the vehicle we've got what's called the wet side and the dry side the wet side of the vehicle lockers are all your different pumps hose water rescue equipment there's lines working at height equipment as well we carry 1800 liters to 2000 liters of water on board to start firefighting before we go into the mains of a street and there's a, a big pump at the back that pumps the water out we also carry hose reels as well for high pressure water on the dry side We've got the RTC equipment, so we've got our hydraulic cutters, spreaders, the big tools for cutting up cars, hydraulic rams. We've got our trauma kit, which is fairly basic, but getting better. We carry oxygen, bag valve and masks, oxygen therapy masks, Gadel airways. We've got aspirators as well and a kit for environmental, so we've got some thermal blankets on there and we've got... C-spine collars, which are don't get used as often as they used to. Again, we normally take the lead on the paramedics for that one. They're on board in case we do need them. And we have a short extrication board and KED splint. There's various other small tools as well that we carry from a door enforcer for breaking in front doors of properties to circular saws for cutting and various hammers and chisels and things like that. Quite the toolbox, but actually there's a fairly hefty bit of medical equipment in there. And I guess from my point of view, the other thing that I'm always acutely aware of, particularly this time of year, is that our patients get really cold really quickly. And and the more of the car you guys do the can Mm -hmm. opener thing with, the less environmental protection they've got. And when it's howling with snow and blowing a hoolie, actually getting some of your insulation stuff in as well as any kit that we're carrying is a great yeah, to be honest, I'll be honest about it. I didn't really take this into consideration before I went on a, a Wemsey course that you were actually on yourself. You were teaching on it. And the big thing with the, the Wemsey course was environmentals. That was a game changer, I think, for us in the training department when I brought that back. 
it's something that we add in a lot of our training now is environmentals, packaging your casualty correctly and trying to enforce it if a casualty is big sick, if they're big sick and cold, it can spiral out of control. So that's something that the firefighters now realise, I think, quite well and they're starting to deal with it a lot, lot better, keeping the casualty dry and warm as well. That's fantastic. There's certainly pretty good evidence now that avoiding that early triad of death in terms of hypothermia, coagulopathy yeah. and acidosis, the more that we can do at minute one to reduce that stress on the yeah. system, the, the better. And it, it's something again. that a lot of my colleagues would take it into account, you know, but it really didn't realise the, the big impact that hypothermia had on that trimodal distribution of death and that outcome, long-term outcome of the patient as well, if we didn't deal with that hypothermia really quickly. Now, you kind of touched on training a bit, and I know you're really involved with the trauma care training. I'm guessing that on a kind of station by station level, you also do quite a lot of simulation and kind of moulage for (laughs) for scenarios. I really get into the moulage side of things. The the training department invested quite a lot of money, actually, in our training equipment. And courses we put together, we try and make them as realistic as possible with the sticky blood and the squirting blood and the viscerations, etc. So any training that I do with the stations and the crews is really realistic. And I think, to be honest, well, I know for a fact after the courses, they buy into it a lot more. The more realistic the training I can give them the more they f- seem to focus and actually enjoy it and they get a lot out of it everybody's come back to me to say like the moulage and the realistic training that they get they do like and enjoy it's very good because it dulls the effect so i guess particularly for new members of your teams actually by the time they hit a nasty mm-hmm. rtc they've kind of seen some moulages and it's not quite as shockingly horrific as it yeah. would be for, for that, folks, and for that's that's exactly it it's not desensitization at all but it's more giving them a, a heads up of what potentially they could and will come across you know we've all seen it but yeah if, if i can give them some realistic training to prep them there's nothing like the real thing but if they can get that preparation the training does kick in a bit better i find the more realistic i can make it plus as, as firefighters and first responders they enjoy that sort of stuff as well <laughs> they enjoy the, the messy training and it's it's always gets good feedback you kind of touched on the fact that, as I understand it, you're doing a little bit more in the way of first response type stuff, particularly out in rural communities now. Yeah, we get called from time to time to gain entry to premises. Quite a lot of the time we'll end up doing first aid, could be basic life support, do carry defibs as well. So there has been quite a lot of that recently where the police will call for us to smash in a door to maybe they haven't heard of an elderly person or somebody's taken ill and we'll then go in and take over the medical side until the ambulance can can arrive. There was a, a project run for pre-hospital cardiac care with the fire brigade, which actually ran quite successfully, where they would actually, the ambulance service would call for the fire service because we carry defibs. So I'm not actually too sure where that's lying at the moment, but I know that it was quite successful and uh, many lives were saved by calling a firefighter in a car or in the fire engine because, you know, a lot of villages have got fire service but they don't have an ambulance nearby or the ambulance can be tied up elsewhere so that first response with the defib and decent chest compressions and the team approach that we use has become very useful in saving casualties. And for you guys in terms of geographic laydown my understanding is that you obviously got stations in all the big cities but then as you go more and more rural you have retained stations. Yeah so I started off my career 18 years ago in Aberdeen city centre. I've always been a whole time firefighter and now watch commander but as let's say outside Aberdeen city and in the big cities the fire service is predominantly on a retained duty service in the highlands and islands they still run some voluntary small stations but generally it'd be a retained duty station where we all carry pagers so what I do on my days off 
I look after a local station. I carry a, a pager. When the call 999 goes through the control room, it goes through to fire service control. They page me and we all respond from our homes. It can be middle of night whenever. We make our way down to the fire station and we respond from there. The fire engines are exactly the same as the ones in the city the whole time. The job, once you're out at an incident, is exactly the same as a whole-time job would be in the city. We're asked to do pretty much the same things. But the guys and girls only have one night of training a week out with their compulsory sort of annual courses that they would have to do at the Port Lethen Training Centre or the National Training Centres. And that huge resource that sits out in the communities, and it's fantastic that we've got groups of folk that can respond like that. And one of the things that's that's really noticeable, certainly from my point of view, is, is that you guys have very much of a team ethos. Yeah, that's one of the big things from the get-go when you start training for the fire service. It is team-orientated. got a command structure from firefighter right up to the chief fire officer. Everybody knows their place and they work really well. I think, you know, any job I've been, that teamwork just kicks straight in from the minute we leave the station. The guys are always quiet in the back of the appliance. They listen to their briefs from the front. Any information I pass back to them guys. So when we hit the ground, we hit the ground running at every occasion. We work very well as a team in the, in the fire service. At the top of the hierarchy is always safety. I can count on the guys and girls around me watching my back. They know I've got their back. We always work well, yeah. I guess probably the last thing to touch on is for jobs where you're not involved, what are the kind of jobs or triggers that, that should be making us think actually having the fireys here will be a real asset in terms of looking yeah, after the patient? It could be a case of you just need more hands. And if an ambulance is not around the corner, your ambulance might be an hour, two hours away, you might think, well, I've got a fire station just along the street. Get hold of fire control, ask the question, can we get an appliance down with a defibrillator, a, you know, a trauma pack? You could have four to six trained firefighters that could assist with CPR. Every firefighter is trained in CPR, basic life support. Some are a bit more advanced than others. You know, so it's always a question to ask control, is there a fire engine available? Could I get some more resources? I've been involved with jobs where you guys have done things that I would never really have thought about, like holding screens so that you can intubate without having glare off of the, the sun in, in the middle of summer or looking after yeah. environmentals yeah. or even just sort of looking after the surrounding folk who are kind of peripherally involved in an incident but not requiring yeah, definitely. I care. think the, the larger instance I've been involved in, if it's a case of large-scale triage, then you've got another group of folk with a, a good set of skills that can assist and maybe it's not the really big sick people that need to look after you know they might be in hand with the paramedics it might be lesser sick people that need to look after and you know the firefighters are more than capable of bandaging anybody up and looking after their welfare as well but it's great because it allows that cognitive bandwidth for us knowing that you know, you've got somebody who's not yeah. going to get distracted or pull something out or, yeah. or do something daft and just having kind of reliable folk amongst the team is yeah is and really I think just the way we work and our mentality we will do what we're told the basics was to tell us to like stand there for an hour with your arm out holding the strip we will do that if you want us to hold somebody's head and support them we'll do that you know the, the guys won't question what you're doing they'll follow orders they're very very good like that listen we've been getting all of our presenters to give us three top tips and i'm just wondering what your thoughts are in terms of your basics responders kind of interacting with the fire service. What, what would you suggest? Well, take working messages? with the basic responders locally, the best thing that you could do, the first one I would say is visit your local station, get in contact with your local watch commander and visit the guys and girls. See if you can start getting some training done with them on station. They would love that. More than happy to have you, obviously, once COVID's out of the way, to have you on the station and training with them. So when you go to go an incident, you'll know the local fireys. You'll be able to work with them and they'll know you and you'll both know your own capability and you'll be part of the team. Second one I would say was 
remember the hierarchy of safety. It's your safety is paramount. So you're always looking after yourself first. The fireys will have your back, but remember your safety and wear your correct PPE and follow the brief from the guys and, and everything should go well. Lastly, don't be afraid or don't be shy to ask for help at a job. The guys and girls, remember, they're all trained at least at a basic level when it comes to trauma care and some at a more advanced level and they're more than willing to help out. So just don't be afraid to ask for help. John, that's fantastic. And thanks so much. I think it's a useful reminder to me to actually pop down to the station in Pitlochery yeah. and sit and have a cup of tea once once all this is out is always uh, like a good cup of tea. Bring some biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. John, You're welcome. Very much. Thank you for asking. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.